Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I want to encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to uh, Genesis 47. We're going to be in Genesis 47 and 48 today. And then next week, we'll be in Genesis 49 and 50 as we finish out this series that we've been calling Joseph. We've been for several weeks now in the book of Genesis, from chapter 12 all the way through the end next week. We've talked about the patriarchs and the matriarchs, and for several weeks now, we've been focusing on the life experiences of one individual, Joseph. You'll recall that Joseph was a young man who who had a multicolored coat that matched on the outside the vibrant technicolored soul that he carried around on the inside. It was Joseph as a young boy who had the capacity to see, to see the action of God that was always coming alive around him. He was a dreamer. He could dream dreams and interpret dreams. And, and, and when he pointed to the things that he saw, not everybody knows how to dream. And not everybody agrees with the dream that you have. And he found it to be the case that when he talked about the thing he dreamed, his family resisted it. In fact, shut it down, turned him away, sold him into slavery down in Egypt. He never wanted to go to Egypt. It was never on his bucket list. But he went as a slave. Yet in Egypt, every one of his experiences, every heart-wrenching moment of disappointment, every moment of suffering and trial, every experience that left him in deep, deep despair, or would have left him in deep, deep despair, surprisingly became the venue for God to demonstrate God's subversive love, a kind of love that is always turning things upside down. And God was constantly meeting Joseph in those experiences with God's subversive love, raising him back up just when life had crushed him down to the earth. And as he continued to rise, Pharaoh has a dream and he doesn't understand the dream, so he interprets it for him. And he says to Pharaoh, your dream means that there is coming seven years of abundance. It's going to be fantastic. There will be plenty of land and resource and produce and agriculture, but those seven years will be followed by seven years of extraordinary pain, famine, drought. So Pharaoh hired this clever young out-of-towner to be in charge of organizing all the resources in such a way 
that for the first seven years of abundance, they would be rationed and organized so that when the seven bad years come, no one would be without. And he was elevated to a, a position second in command to Pharaoh. There was nobody in all the kingdom as powerful as Joseph except Pharaoh. And as fate would have it, or God would have it, a famine eventually came and the, the family that had thrown him away years before, they started to feel the pinch of the famine even as far north as Canaan. And they had to come to Egypt because word on the streets was that Egypt could take care of them. Well, they get there and beyond their wildest imagination, who do they run into but the brother they thought they threw away and now he's in charge and now he's got the plan and long story short, over these last two, three weeks, we've seen them rekindle and reconcile. And we've marveled a little while at how it is that God would use all these seemingly disconnected, painful moments to synergize into one redemptive plan that we could have never predicted. And last week we were with Joseph when he moved his family into town. Well, now the family's there, and they're getting used to life in their new neighborhood. They're having a tough time. You know, it takes a while to figure out where the grocery store is and when the trash runs, and they've gotten a few letters from the HOA that says, you know, there's some things you have to do in Egypt that you didn't have to do in Canaan, and so they're getting used to life in the new world, but there is now a, a tension rising attention rising not only in the family but within joseph because the question is this now we are in egypt but are we egyptian or are we still the same family we used to be there is a way to live in the empire it has its rules it has its rhythms it has its rituals and joseph has figured it out but is Joseph Egyptian? Will he choose the way of the empire or the way of the promise? And this is where we meet him today. And we begin reading in Genesis 47, chapter 47, verse 13. Now there was no food... In all the land, for the famine was very severe, the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished, that's a hard word, languished because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money to be found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When the money from the land of Egypt and from the land of Canaan was all spent, all the Egyptians, which now includes dad, brothers, cousins, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die here before your eyes? For our money is gone. It's gone. And Joseph answered, Give me your livestock. And I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. If your money is gone, 
So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, the donkeys. That year he supplied them with food in exchange for all the livestock. When that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We cannot hide from my Lord that, that our money is all spent and that the herds of cattle are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Shall we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land in exchange for food? We with our land will become slaves to Pharaoh. Just give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. All the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe upon them, and the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made slaves of them from one end of Egypt to the other. This text, this text is both daunting and haunting. On the one hand, the text is daunting because here is a picture of abject suffering and desperation. They are starving. Now, up till now, simply because of the genius of Joseph, everyone has been able to survive. He had organized the agriculture. He had organized the relief. And if you had the money to come and purchase, then they would, they would dole it out. They would ration out portions to each family so that they would not go hungry. But now the money was gone. The famine had lasted so long and was so severe that they were out of money. In fact, the text says it two or three times the money in all the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan, it was gone. They were broke and starving. Now, this is not my main point today, but I, I can't help it. You know, if I had some time, no kidding, kidding. If I had some time, I would tell you that there is a kind of hunger that eventually is so deep that all the money in all the kingdom cannot satisfy. Now, you and I may not be suffering under a famine in Egypt, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because there is a hunger in all persons for something. And, and along the way, we are taught in this empire that we call consumerism. That's the empire that strangles us, consumerism. We are taught that if you have enough money and you could purchase something that makes you feel a little better, then you're set free for a while. And we do. I mean, we do some things. We buy some things. We gather some things. We make it possible to bring some comfort, some convenience to our lives. We go places. We stay places. We drive places. And that satisfies a hunger. Kind of until you hunger again. You know, some of us who try to watch the things that we eat, here's the trouble of what, what I've learned. 
I love carbs. I do. I, I subscribe to the no carb left behind program. And the problem is, I, it's bad news because I know this. If I eat carbs, I want more carbs. Because I don't just eat a cookie. I ate a bag of cookies. I'm not kidding. Nathan and I, last night, we put in a movie. We're watching Rain Man, a classic from the 80s. Such an 80s movie. And before we, we put in the movie, we went to Publix and we got chocolate chip cookie dough and ice cream. And the problem is, I didn't come home, Todd, and just, and just eat a cookie. I ate a bunch of cookies. Because when you eat one cookie... One carb makes you hunger for more. There is a kind of hunger that is so deep that no matter what you try to do to satiate it with stuff or wealth or money, there comes an end to the capacity of money to satisfy a deep, deep hunger because there's a hunger in you that comes from God. God put it there. And nothing but God can satisfy it. St. Augustine put it this way. My, my soul is restless, O God, until it finds its rest in Thee. Colossians 1.15 says it this way. We were created by God and for God. There's a hunger in you that nothing on the planet can satisfy except God. They had run out of their resources to meet their own hunger by way of their hard-earned cash. There's a hunger that's deeper than what you can afford to satisfy. And so they come to an end of their resources and they come to Joseph and they say to Joseph, we're out of money, we've got nothing. And Joseph says, well, you've got livestock. Sell me your livestock and I will give you food. So they sell their livestock and they get one more year of food out of it. They come at the end of that year and now not only is their money gone, but their money-making mechanism is gone. Livestock, cattle. Right? And they say to him, which I think is very interesting in the text, Joseph doesn't say, well, then sell me yourself. They say, we've got nothing left. Purchase us, and we will be your slaves. See, this text is not just daunting, it's haunting. Because as Walter Brueggemann points out, we're only just a couple of pages away from the book of Exodus. And even though the last page in the book of Genesis and the first page page of the book of Exodus is 400 years. There's 400 years between the last page of Genesis and the first page of Exodus. But you know when you open up the page on Exodus, it begins with a story of abject suffering and oppression. The people have been enslaved in bondage for generations. But it all began here. And it didn't feel like it was going to begin that way because indentured servitude had been around a while. Okay, we're, we're out of resources. Let's, I'll, I'll go into debt with my life. And after I work a certain number of years, then I'll get out of debt. But they had begun to compromise. They had given everything they had. 
which raises a significant question. (laughs) See, that's how slavery works. That's how bondage works. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens by gradually compromising all that is valuable to you. We start by giving away just the edges of who we are. We compromise what we believe. We compromise what we do, where we go, how we operate, how we live in this world. We begin to compromise just the edges. But eventually, when it doesn't satisfy, we begin begin to compromise the very soul of who we are, which raises a serious question. How much can you compromise and still remain free? How much of your life can you give away of yourself and still be you? Joseph was the one who had all the answers. He was the liberator. He had the way out of this suffering. But now the one who was liberator is the one who incarcerates. And you know what the worst part is? They thank him for it. See, that's how empire works. That's how empire works works. It's gradual. It's subtle. You don't even know it's happening, but there is a set of rules to live by in the empire, and that is we value the strong, the powerful, the mighty, and we exploit the vulnerable. That's what happens in an empire. Empires dominate and devour. (laughs) Empires value the powerful and exploit the vulnerable. (laughs) Always have, always will. Because empires are concerned with one thing, empire. And the building, the the securing up, the shoring up of the empire at all costs, even at the cost of the most vulnerable within the empire. And Joseph is getting good at it. Which raises the question, Joseph this is not where you're from. This, you're not a person of the empire. You're a person of the promise. But you're getting so good at living in this new reality that will this be your way forward? He saved millions by doing this. Saved millions of people by taking their livestock, by putting them into slavery, but it's salvation through exploitation. Gradual, subtle, and lasts a long time. But it won't last too long with Joseph because he has another conversation coming. He's gotten so good at becoming a master of the empire and all the ways that the empire must move and operate to survive. But in a few moments, he has a meeting with dad Dad, Jacob, the old patriarch. We said last week that it's patriarchs and matriarchs who have the capacity to remind you who you really are, just in case you forget. And he has a meeting with Jacob because Jacob is about to die. And Jacob wants to bless Joseph one more time. So he calls for Jacob. And we begin reading in chapter 48, verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. It's a fascinating scene that unfolds over the next six or seven verses. He goes to his aging, sick, and dying father, Jacob. 
And Jacob tells him the story again. He says, Joseph, our people have been given a promise. It was true with my grandfather. It was true with my father. It's true with me, and it will be true with you. That God has a way to provide, and we will become a great and mighty nation in all of the ways that are different and important. And he says, not only have we been given this promise by God that something can happen within our family and there will be an aliveness, a life, a promise, and we will become great in all the most important ways. But I want to make sure your kids are a part of it too. He knows that Joseph had two sons while he was in Egypt, sons by another wife outside of where they're from. And and Jacob says to Joseph, I want to make sure that your two sons get in on this. Which is interesting to me because he includes them. Doesn't have to. But the way of promise is the way of inclusion. The way of empire is, who do you belong to? Where are you from? The way of promise is, come, there's room at the table for you. So he calls for the two sons to gather around him and we pick up the story In verse 8, when Israel, that's Jacob, saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Now, I love that because on on the one hand, it looks as if in a moment we're going to learn he has dimming eyesight. It looks as if he doesn't recognize them. Who are these? I can't see you too well. But the truth is, he's also a grandfather. And I've been around enough grandfathers to hear a different tone in the voice, when he brings these two beautiful young boys before him and he says, oh, now who are these? Sounds more like a grandfather, doesn't it? Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age and he could not see well. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I did not expect to even see your face. And and here God has let me see your children also. Every time I read the word see in the Bible, I kind of read some things into it. Sometimes it's appropriate. Sometimes it may not be. But when I hear, I see I didn't expect to see. I can't see very well, but now I see you. Didn't think I'd see your kids, but now I see them. There's an emphasis in the Hebrew writer who's attempting to show us something, that Jacob was a seer. He's the only one who saw Joseph for who he was as a boy. Gave him that coat of many colors because he saw something different in him. Have you ever had anyone in your life see you? Because if you have, if you've been around anyone who took time enough to look past the exterior and actually see you, you should thank them. Thank them for looking deeper into you than all the world around you. That's not a bad way to think about waking up every morning because it may be regardless of whether anybody saw into you. It may be that God has placed someone in your life 
for whom you are being prepared to see them. Has God placed anybody in front of you who perhaps is invisible to all the world, but God is preparing you to see them? It's not a bad way to wake every morning. Not a bad prayer to start with either. Open my eyes that I may see. Glimpses of truth thou hast for me. Place in my hands that wonderful key that shall unclasp and set me free. Silently now I wait for thee. Ready, my God, thy will to see. Open my eyes, illumine me, spirit divine. Jacob saw these boys and reaches out as we continue. I did not expect to see, but now I see. Then Joseph removed them from his father's knees and bowed himself with his face to the earth. Joseph took them both. Ephraim, watch, watch the posturing now. Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them near him. What he's doing is preparing for a blessing. In the ancient Near East, the right hand was the hand of blessing. The right hand with most people is the dominant hand. Sorry, lefties in the room. Any lefties? You, rose, you raised it with your right hand. I just noticed that. They, the, there are some lefties. Okay, left hand. of the, the, No offense, but the dominant hand, at least symbolically and thematically in the Scripture, is the right hand because it symbolized power, authority. They're in the land of promogenitor. Remember that word that we talked about a few weeks ago? The tradition of promogenitor, which means the firstborn gets all the good stuff. Where if you're firstborn, you get a double portion of the inheritance. If you're firstborn, you have the authority. You make all the decisions. That's the land in which they lived. And the right hand upon the head is the blessing. So in the text that we just read, Joseph brings his two boys up before dad and he places his second-born Ephraim to his father's left hand. And he places his first-born Manasseh to his father's right hand. Go on up there, boys. He, he won't bite. He backs up and he waits because the assumption is that Jacob would then reach out both hands nearby. Oh, there you are. And bless the firstborn with all authority and the secondborn with a blessing still, but less. So we pick up the reading there. But Israel, uh-oh, twist in the plot. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger. And his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands... For Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my ancestors Abraham and Isaac walked, 
the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, bless these boys, and in them let my name be perpetuated and the name of my ancestors Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude on the earth. Wow. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took his father's hand and removed it from Ephraim's head and put it on Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your hand, your right hand, on his head. But his father refused, saying, I, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a great people, and he shall also be great. But nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So here's Jacob, Yaakov, the heel grabber, the trickster, who at the last minute, oh, psych, crosses his arms and places his true blessing on the head of the younger one. Let's not forget that Jacob is a secondborn. And Jacob, the secondborn, understands from experience that even though in the way of the empire, the assumption is only the first and only the fastest and only the best and the brightest and only the strongest, only the most beautiful can receive God's favor and love. In his experience, he understands, nah, God specializes in the surprise of blessing those you least expect. And there again emerges that theme that we've already traced through the whole of the Bible, that the way of promise is a way of surprise. The way of promise is continually uplifting those who have been pressed down, and you could even trace throughout all of Scripture that it's not the firstborn, but the secondborn who receives these unique blessings. Do you remember? It's, it's Abel, not Cain. It's Isaac, it's not Ishmael. It's Jacob, not firstborn Esau. It's Rachel, it's not Leah. See, this secondborn affinity in the heart of God. And all through the rest of Scripture, it's the widow, the orphan, the outcast, the stranger, the resident alien, even in the New Testament, that great parable, the prodigal son, the firstborn did everything right, and yet the secondborn went and blew it, blew all the inheritance, lived a wild life, and yet there was still grace for the secondborn. Why is this important? Because in this story, what Jacob, old Jacob, who has dim eyesight, young Joseph says, oh, now dad, they're there. You've gotten it wrong. Here, let me help you and take your hand. And he says, don't touch. I know what I'm doing. Jacob says, yeah, that may be how it works in the empire, but that's not how it works in the heart of God. That God is constantly seeing those who are being overlooked by the power systems of the world. And therein lies the tension in Joseph. Which way will Joseph go? Will Joseph go the way of the empire? Only the biggest, the baddest, the most beautiful, 
Or will he go the way of the promise? The way of the least of these? Maybe the question is not which way will Joseph go. But which way will you? Which way will I? Because our Lord, when teaching, said there really are two ways to go in life. This is the way he put it in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus says, so the last will be first. The first will be last. But he says, narrow is the gate. Narrow is the gate. Let's go to that text. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 7, I think. There we go. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beloved, what am I saying today? I'm saying that you may not live in, a, in Egypt during a famine. You may not live in an empire as defined by ancient Scripture the truth is you and I are constantly living in realms that are attempting to get us to behave in one way that in so many ways is contrary to the way that we are intended to live. That we are people not of the empire, but of the promise. When Jesus talked about it, this is how he talked about it. He said, look, the kingdom of God is in you. And it is a way of life that is so very different than the way of life in all of the neighborhoods around us. And by neighborhoods, I mean all the kingdoms of this world. So the question becomes, well, how do we choose that way? Thomas one night, on the night before Jesus was crucified, says, I want to follow you, but how can we know the way we're living in a world, Thomas says, where we're not sure which way to go. How do I know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Let's not forget that when choosing which way to go, the one who showed us went by way of the cross. And said that contrary to the way strength is defined in the empire, contrary to the way power is defined in the empire, I say that it's defined by the poured out life. I say that it's defined by sacrifice. And that kingdom, the one that's in you, will be the only lasting kingdom. This is why Handel reached over into the 11th chapter of Revelation and tugged forth a verse when he said, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Let's pray. God, we recognize there is one and only one enduring kingdom. It is the one that you came to establish through your crucifixion and resurrection. Show us how to let that kingdom be resurrected within us 
in every encounter that we make with people. Show us how to live by way of the promise. Show us how to live by the way of the cross so that in the end we have lived out proof that we believe you are the way, the truth, the life. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.